The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Close your eyes for a moment. Now imagine you're away from it all. Beside a crystal clear mountain stream, the cool grass crunches underfoot. Take a deep breath and drink in the sound of water cascading over the stones as birds call out from above. A real paradise like this isn't easy to come by, but it does still exist. And with your help, places like this one can last forever. You see, the Nature Conservancy works locally with communities, businesses, and people like you to preserve the most precious natural places around the world. They protect the animals that live there, the plants that grow there, and even the water. That way, this beautiful place will be beautiful forever. And we'll make sure that closing your eyes will never be the only way to get there. I'm Paul Newman. Help the Nature Conservancy save the last great places. Visit the Nature Conservancy at nature.org. That's nature.org. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. Summer isn't fun when you're hungry. If only I had a big test today. Or a book report to give. Give me a math quiz. Give me some homework. If your child relies on free school lunches, we can help provide them with free meals this summer. I'll stay after class. I'll clean the chalkboard. I'll keep my desk grill clean. So they can stop worrying about food and start focusing on fun. I'll do extra homework. I'll clean the class pet's cage. I'll skip recess. I wish I was in school. I wish I was in school. School might end, but free lunches don't have to. Find your local Feeding America food bank for help. Together, we're Feeding America. To find your local Feeding America food bank, visit feedingamerica.org slash summer meals. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Are you sick of idiots on the road? Well, so are we, which is why we'd like to give you all a few tips for driving in California. First, if you're slowing down to take a right turn, please, we beg you, move into the bike lane if there's no one there, of course. This is so that the cars behind you don't have to slow down. Second, if you're on the freeway, try and stay out of the right lane when people are merging. This streamlines the merging process and helps everyone to get to their destination faster. Finally, please don't get into the far left lane and then drive slowly. Don't be that person. Nobody likes that person. Thank you. Hi there, good morning. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. I have a very special guest joining us this morning. It's Julia Pimsler, who's calling in. And she created a company called Little Pim for actually her two boys. And she her focus was helping them learn language. And I know as a kid, I tackled learning different languages can be very challenging, um, but she has this very successful company. So I'm looking forward to learning more about that. It's won a lot of awards. And she has also lectured across the United States. She has a 
unbelievable educational background. She attended Yale University. She has an MFA from the French National Film School in Paris and attended Harvard's Executive Education Program. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Julia Pimsler. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Good. I'm so glad you could call in. I'm really glad you invited me. Thank you. I've been really important topic you cover on this show. Thank you. Thank you. I know we were talking off air about the theme of the show. Uh, it is very unique. Get the funk out. And for those of you who are new to this, yes, my show features people talking about their ups and downs. And sometimes those ups and downs, especially the downs, can be so scary. But going through that funk can be the best thing that ever happened to us. That's certainly true in my case. (laughs) (laughs) So before we dive into Little Pim, because I'm really excited to learn about your company, tell me a little bit about your educational background. I want to go through some of your backstory. Sure. Well, I had sort of a unique childhood in that my father is one of the leading teachers of foreign languages. His name is Dr. Paul Pimsler, and he developed the first method for learning a second language at home on your own called the Pimsler Method. So when I was six years old, he took the whole family to Paris and was invited to teach at the Sorbonne there to teach this method. So I went to first grade in Paris, France, not speaking any French, um, walked (laughs) in the first day of school completely you know, mystified, had no idea what <laughs> anyone was talking about in, in this French public school classroom. But by three months later, I was fully bilingual in French. And I don't even remember three learning months? that beautiful part. Three uh, months, yeah, because, you know, kids at that age, they have this unique ability to learn a second language. Yes. Really, up until the age of six, it's super easy for kids to learn a second language. And so I, you know, learned French fluently, and then that had this amazing impact on the rest of my life. I, you know, grew up in New York City. We did move back after that, and um, I had access to scholarships and great opportunities. I wound up going to Yale. Then I moved back to France. I went to the French National Film School. Because I spoke French, again, I was able to get in. So that was really a big gift. That's incredible. Yes. Because what a foundation for your life. Yeah, it was amazing. It was a real confidence booster, too, just to have one subject that I was really good in. And now, you know, that I'm an adult and can reflect back on other things it brought me, it was really a global awareness from an early age, you know, that English is not the only language in the world. There's all these other cultures and countries that you get the key to if you speak another language. So you kept this up all through, you know, your youth. French. Yes, yes. We continue to go back to France from time to time, and we have family there. Um, and then I moved there when I graduated college. I, was, uh, I studied film in college, and I was looking at where to live after I graduated and thought, well, if I'm going to be broke somewhere, which I knew I was, <laughs> <laughs> Paris seemed like a pretty romantic place to be broke, and yeah, it turned out that was true. That's a tough place to live. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. You have to live on five francs a day, do it in Paris. At the time, it was francs. It's now euros. How did you uh, gravitate towards film school? You know, I was always interested in social change. Um, I was always interested in civil rights issues. I went to the Ethical Culture School in New York, and they have a big emphasis on values and making a difference in the world. And I always felt that media was this incredible vehicle for reaching millions of people and helping to influence how they see things. So I became a documentary filmmaker to help contribute to films that change people's minds about the world. What were some of your early projects? Well, our first film was called Innocent Until Proven Guilty, and that was about Mm. young black men in the criminal justice system. This was at the time that the stat had just come out that one in three African-American men was involved in the criminal justice system, whether behind bars or having just served time. 
So we, we took a close look at that issue and followed a, an African-American public defender in Washington, D.C., who was working with young black men who were in and out of the juvenile justice system. And it was just a fascinating two-year adventure of Sounds being it. up close what that was all about. And then we did films on uh, educational issues, welfare issues, uh, feminist issues. It was, it was a really exhilarating time, about five years of making these documentaries. Uh, did you get them into the film festivals? Where did they go? They were in film festivals, and then we sold them to, we would produce them independently and then sell them to places like HBO, PBS, Cinemax, and they sort of did the rounds that way. But then we also connected with nonprofits all over the country. That's so that great. The film I mentioned was shown in juvenile justice centers and shown to public defenders and helped give people a more behind-the-scenes look at some of these issues. I'm just curious, where did you grow up in New York? In Manhattan? Um, I grew up right on the Upper East Side, 75th and Lexington. I grew up on 86th and 2nd. Oh, well, we were neighbors. <laughs> Where did you go to school? I went to the Ethical Culture School, which then turned into Fieldston for high school. I know Fieldston because it's next to, next to Horace Mann, where I went. Oh, my goodness. Well, we come from the same place that then, right? You, so right? you right up the road. That is so funny. Small world. That's great. And then I married a, an Irvine fellow. So did uh, you? my husband's from Irvine, California. Oh, that's so funny. That's incredible. Okay, so I wanted to find out, we talked also off-air, a lot of women, we go through funks, personal, professional. Do you, do you have a story you'd like to share, something you went through that you thought, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm gonna, ever going to make it through this alive? You know? <laughs> I have a few, but let me, uh, let okay. me share the one that, that has had the biggest impact on my professional life in any case, and probably my personal life as well. Um, so I'd have to back up a few more years. That uh, well, where we left off talking a few minutes ago, I was a documentary filmmaker making these films for you know, HBO and Cinemax and very exciting life, but not very conducive to family life. So when I met my husband and we decided to have kids, I stepped out of that business that I had founded. It was actually a documentary production company called Big Mouth Productions. It was all women who worked <laughs> there. <laughs> and uh, so I stepped away from that and I became a nonprofit fundraiser I mentioned I always cared about these social issues, and I thought that was a way I could continue contributing, uh, fundraising, and putting dollars towards these human rights nonprofits. Very nice. So I was doing that, and um, I came up with the idea while doing that and on maternity leave with my first son to create the first language teaching program for young children. A little Pim. Okay. Little Pim, exactly. Mm -hmm. That was my, my second baby. Um, <laughs> I had my son Emmett about eight years ago, and then I came up with this idea. And, you know, spent a few months thinking, boy, somebody should really create a top-notch language teaching program for young children because that's when they learn best and yes. kids think it's so fun to learn a second language. Someone should really tap into that and create a media series for kids to learn a language. And I went around saying that for about three months, and it suddenly dawned on me, you know, I had this media background. I'm yeah. the daughter of Dr. Paul Pimsler. Yes. And I love kids. You know, maybe that someone is me. That would be you. Right. <laughs> that would be me. Seems obvious in retrospect, but it did take me a few months to get to. Well, like, um, let me interrupt for one second. Isn't sure. it interesting how, as a mom, I'm a mom too, you know, we yeah. can be pregnant, we're juggling all these things, and we come up with these unbelievable ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it? and it happens a lot, actually. You know, there's this whole category of mompreneurs. Yes. And those are all women who said, hey, I want this for my kid, and why doesn't it exist? And then we, then we go make it. And, and we come up with it sometimes when we're completely sleep-deprived. When we be nursing, sleep-deprived, you know, we have spit up all over us, and we're like, hey, I got this great <laughs> idea. 
<laughs> I wonder if it's because our guard is down, right? Usually your guard is up, and, and when you have those ideas, you're like, oh, I'm never going to do that. I'll never have time for that. And Maybe. it doesn't even have a chance to bubble up. But Maybe that's what it is. When you're so exhausted, you'll entertain any thought. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Our great escape. <laughs> exactly. So go on. So, I didn't yeah, so I did decide to pursue it, although I did not quit my day job. Um, I you know, raised a little money from mainly me and my husband and my mother and produced a pilot, so a little five-minute episode of what I thought this fun video series that would teach kids a second language might look like. Perfect. And you know, I did that, actually, I think, while still on my maternity leave. I had a little time off. Um, and then I just kind of threw it up as a side business, you know, got a website going, hired somebody one day a week, and kept my day job as a fundraiser. But at the end of the first year, it had made, you know, over $100,000, and there seemed to be a lot Whoa. of interest out there. That's so incredible. I did decide that I should, you know, leave the fundraising world and create this company full-time. And funny enough, that was not the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is what I want to tell you about. That was hard, but it just felt so right because of my background and that this was going to be combining my three passions. It just seemed like... I was meant to do this company, and it, yes. and it flowed quite naturally. I raised about a million dollars. We started up an office, you know, hired a staff, and I wouldn't say it was smooth sailing, but you know, I was able to get it off the ground That's without great. too too much difficulty. Was there ever so, ex- excuse me? Was ahead. there ever a moment where you said, "Oh no, this is too too huge. I have too many things going on. How am I going to make this you know really come to life?" Well, the interesting thing is having come out of documentary filmmaking, which is, I still believe, one of the hardest jobs anyone can do because you're constantly convincing people to fund something that doesn't exist yet, right? It's a film idea, so you have like three pieces of paper and you're trying to convince people that that's going to be a documentary. Yes. And there's not a real market for it. So you're, you're actually, as I used to like to say, you're drawing water from stone when you're raising <laughs> money right. for documentaries. At least when you're doing a business like this was, there's a marketplace, parents buy products for their kids, you have a little more to draw from. So while it was very challenging, I think having come out of five years of documentary filmmaking, just about anything would seem easy. Yes, I can see that. Yeah, that was a good, that was a good prep for it. Um, but no, what's interesting is that the story I wanted to share came about three and a half years in. So we actually had been doing the company for five and a half years because it took two years to fully create the product, working with a neuroscientist, educational advisors, language advisors, one thing I learned from my parents is that if you're going to make an educational product, take the time to get it right. And you know, then yes. you can sell it for years and years, but don't rush that production part. So we spent a full two years creating it. By the time I was really up and running with the company, I'd already been in it two years, then three and a half more years of just pedal to the metal, you know, wearing 10 hats, working with a small team, everyone really working. I wouldn't say round the clock because many of us have families and work-life balance is important to me. But sure. Just very, very, um, you know, intense, difficult, stressful three years, three mm-hmm. and a half years. And that takes us to about two, two years ago. And I kind of hit a wall where I just was exhausted. Um, by now, I had two little kids at home. My second son, Adrian, was born, and I love my boys, and it's really important to me to be an involved, active mom. So I was, you know, full-on entrepreneur running this growing company. <sighs> Juggling you know, it taking all. Taking care of my kids. <laughs> uh, my husband works in the nonprofit world. So, uh, you know, we were very involved in the nonprofit world as well. And I just was getting very run down. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the end. I just thought, we're just going to keep working so hard like this. And yes, the company's growing, but it's growing like, you know, maybe 20% a year. It's not 
skyrocketing. You know, if you've followed company stories, what you're always looking for is what they call the hockey stick, where yes. you grow like a little bit, a little bit, but then all of a sudden it goes, you know, woof, sky high, yes. and you just take off. Um, you know, like you might have heard the story of Instagram, right, where they were selling and selling, and then all of a sudden it's doing tremendously well, and they're bought for a billion dollars by Facebook. I know. Um, that did not <laughs> seem to be my story. <laughs> Ugh, depressing. <laughs> And, you know, this was my passion, and I was thrilled to be doing it, but it was wearing thin, and I was just feeling kind of defeated. Like, uh, I poured my heart and soul into this, all of our family savings. Um, I've raised money from all my friends and family, and, you know, what if it doesn't work? Or, Or even worse, what if I've now identified this market, because there's actually never been a fun language teaching product for kids before. That was the first time. And then somebody else, like some big company, comes in, and cleans up that market, you know, comes yes. out with a product that's not as good as ours, not made with as much love and attention and, and love of foreign language teaching, but they have a better distribution machine, more money to spend on marketing, I and can they tell, sort of eat our lunch. I can tell that you probably didn't get a lot of sleep at night. I mean, I, I'd <laughs> be lying in bed going, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of pressure. It yeah. really, really was. It was a lot of pressure. And again, the documentary filmmaking, good training for that. Yes. Because you're always, you know, with, in documentary filmmaking, the way it used to work is you would spend all this money, really hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of two years on a film in the hope that you would sell it and get back to zero. Of course. You would almost never really make a profit even. You would just right. get back what you'd been out on a limb spending for yes. two or three years. So that definitely built up my muscles for risk-taking. Um, but still, even I had my limits, and I'm looking at my two little kids and, and thinking, I don't know if I'm really assuring our family's future or doing, you know, kind of, is this a vanity project at the end of the day where I love language teaching, but this isn't going to be a successful business. So that was kind of my darkest hour, um, right. thinking, am I going to have to turn to all my friends and family and all these investors who believed in me and believed in the company and say, you know what, I think I'm just going to sell because I'm exhausted Let's just sell off this company, and I'm going to move on and do something sure. else. I never even thought I would entertain that, to be honest, but I did, I did get to that place. So what happened? How did it all turn around? Well, it all turned around thanks to reaching out. Um, I think one thing I'm always talking about with other CEOs, and especially women CEOs you know, who have their own businesses, is the importance of having mentors, advisors, you know, people you can turn to, because it can be so lonely yes. running a business. Even though it's exciting, it's, it's really hard at times, and especially times like this. You have cash flow problems, you know, human resources problems, people quitting, etc. So I turned to one of my advisors, who happened to be um, a cousin of mine, and someone who had built up a company and sold it for over $300 million to a large media conglomerate. So he was like the success story in the family. Everyone was talking about this cousin and what he had achieved. And I'd never really talked to him about his story. So I said, would you come into my office and look at my business and help me figure out what I should do and share your story with me? So he came in, and I'll never forget, it was over two years ago, (laughs) but the first thing out of his mouth was, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success story. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so here I had this fantasy that it had been so easy for him, and he just launched his business and you know, sold it for over $300 million. He was like, I worked so hard you know, oh, for 10 brother. years, and there were very dark hours, and you know, ultimately it did work out, but there was a big cliff you know, that he had to go up before yes. he could get to that plateau. So that was really helpful. And then he looked around, you know, fresh perspective, and also you know, a guy, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, looked at everything I had at Little Pim, which... 
I kind of had started taking for granted. You know, it's like, all right, so we created this, you know, entertainment immersion method, and we'd sold thousands of copies, and we had all this distribution, but it just didn't feel like it was working to the level I wanted it to be working. And he said, you have an incredible start here. This is worth so much. You shouldn't throw in the towel. You should go raise venture capital. Oh, that's and promising. And I thought I would fall off my chair because just the <laughs> words venture capital were terrifying to me. Um, I'd always imagined that as like a bunch of, you know, guys in suits who wouldn't want to talk to me and I wouldn't know their language. I had something to do with the VC world when I was a fundraiser, just raising nonprofit dollars. But it's intimidating. Very intimidating. Thank you. That's the right word. It is. (laughs) And this is even though I had raised a lot of money in what's called angel investors, which is, you know, friends and family, Mm -hmm. people they introduce you to. But that's something you do sort of over lunch. You tell them your story. They sign, you know, three pieces of paper and, and it's done. Yes. This is a whole different process. Have you been around the VC world at all? No, I haven't. Okay. But so you have the same do you have the same sort of impression that I described? Oh, of course, you know. Yeah, I mean people, you know, barracudas and suits. <laughs> yes, well they sometimes joke it's vulture capital. Venture <laughs> capital. <laughs> I like that. Um, so it, it was just interesting though to hear him say this is really what you should do and let me explain to you how it works and this is what he had done. And he explained that when you raise venture capital dollars that you have this whole machine behind you supporting your company. You have all of their contacts, you have cash flow, you have access to new partners. And you know, the more he talked about it, the more I realized that was exactly what I needed to do and I actually hadn't been thinking big enough. Oh. That was really the problem is that I was looking at what I had and not imagining what it could be. Yes. And he could see what it could be and that I just needed the capital to get there. You were so smart to bring somebody in that could be objective. That could well, re- thank you. I, it wasn't on purpose. I mean, I didn't know he was gonna, we were going to have this transformational conversation. Yeah. It was more like, well, he's my cousin. He has to talk to me. <laughs> well, it's great. And I always we were talking about this. I always think you should have uh, a team of people that are your think tank to help, you know, give you ideas and be honest with you. It's so true. It's so important because, you know, even if you're a smart cookie, you can't know it all. And also when you're doing a company or probably when you're doing any project you love, you tend to be very focused with your head down. And the truth is you have to have your head up to see what's happening in your field to know where you fit in, you know. And and so this cousin, um, Josh, was so helpful in making me realize that we're part of a really exciting growth industry of, you know, educational online learning, of media. Um, He was seeing all these trends that we fit into, and I just didn't even see them. I was just, you know, slaving away every day trying to make these sales. Yes. So that was a big moment. Um, I did then start researching, okay, well, how could I raise venture capital? And that's when I came across Another bit of a roadblock, which was that, because I got excited about the idea, (laughs) and then I started researching it and found out that less than 4% of venture capital is invested in women-run businesses. What? That's so teeny. Very small number, Uh. yes. And and it's interesting because anecdotally, I knew a lot of CEOs in New York, you know, uh, women CEOs, we just kind of gravitated towards each other, and I couldn't think of one person of these women who had ever raised venture capital or even talked about venture capital. So it felt very inaccessible. Sure. And like that was going to be a really, really big challenge. But I was pretty convinced by then after what Josh had told me, and I felt this surge of new energy, like, That's you know, great. somehow this, this great cloud had been lifted and I could see these, you know, brighter skies. That's great. I knew it would be really hard to get there, but I sort of felt like I can do this. I'm going to just find a way of doing this, and this is what... This is what my company needs. It's like your aha moment, you know? It really was. That's it really was. And it was so 
relieving, I have to say, to realize that I didn't have to sell the company. I wasn't going to have to, you know, disappoint all these investors and whatnot. And, and truly, I, I didn't even really want to do that. I was just getting to a place where I couldn't find the way forward. Mm. I mean, for, for people that are not familiar with the whole process of developing a product like this, it's a very long process. You don't just whip it up. I mean, I'm sure you went through, you know, storyboarding and there's pilot testing and there's it's a, it's a big, yes. long process. Yeah, well, when I say the two years, that's really what we were doing during the two years. You know, we filmed hundreds of children to get just the right clips of kids because our method has real kids doing everyday activities. And then layered in is this animated character, Little Pim the Panda, and he's the one teaching kids a foreign language. Cute. So that all required a lot of, you know, creative work, educational research. We worked with animators. It takes a really long time to do animation, as, as you're probably aware. Yes. So that took months and months. And it was a real labor of love. I mean, I, I adored it. I really did. And that, that's also why I couldn't imagine stepping away from the company. And I'm carrying on my family legacy. So there's also that, that piece of the, pu- of the puzzle. It sounds like it could have also been a uh, show on educational television. Yeah, we did think about that at one point. Um, it seemed like it was a lot easier to just do it ourselves and distribute it ourselves of because course. there are a lot of gatekeepers yes. in, the, in the TV world. Yes. And also their mission doesn't tend to be purely educational, except That's for true. PBS, which doesn't have a lot of money. money. Yeah. So yes. you'd have to make a lot of changes to your idea to make it commercial enough. And yes. I was pretty attached to having this be purely educational. I think Entertaining, it's but educational. What about for someone like myself who studied a little French when I was younger and now I've completely forgotten most of it? Could an adult jump in and try this program? You know, a lot of people who buy it are people who studied a language and don't feel like they learned it as well as they might have liked to, and now they have a second chance with their children. That would be Because great. their children are just little sponges. You know, I think most parents know by now that this zero to six window is this perfect time for teaching kids a second language. There's been a lot of media about it in the last couple of years. But for parents, too, you know, they get a chance to learn again, and it's a really fun thing to do with your child. That sounds great. Yeah, have you been teaching your, do you have one child or two? I have two, and they um, they don't speak French or another language. They speak a little Hebrew, but that's about it. And I think it would be great for them to get involved in learning another language. Oh, well, we'll have to get you set up. Let's talk at the end of the call. And I would get love them that. Some little pim. I would love that. That'd be terrific. We're going to take a break, uh, and then we'll come back, and I want to talk about your personal motto. Why don't you tell me about that, and some of your speaking engagements, and talk a little bit more about the company. Sounds great. All right, hang tight. We've been talking with Julia Pimsler, who started a company called Little Pim, and she's a filmmaker, and she's done all kinds of interesting things. If you've missed any part of today's show, it'll be up on my blog within an hour after the show. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. I'll be back in just a bit. Look at all the cars. Lots of colored cars. Ah, there's a blue one. Isn't it pretty? Ooh, look how fast that red one's going. It's red like that stop sign. Like my jacket. This is a 38-year-old man. My jacket's not a car, is it? Is my jacket a car? My jacket is red, but it doesn't go fast. He may sound a little strange to you and me. But to his two-year-old son, who's interested in cars and colors, he makes perfect sense. That's the sound cars make. When you talk with your child, you build vocabulary, and learning starts long before school does. So follow their lead. Take simple everyday moments, like eating dinner or just watching cars go by, and turn them into learning moments. Ooh, look, red car. Yes, and it's moving awfully fast. Blue car. 
Yes! The man in the red car is about to meet the man in the blue car. Get himself a pretty pink ticket. Turn everyday moments into learning moments. For more tips, go to bornlearning.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. The difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. Studies prove that reading to a child regularly dramatically improves reading skills. And kids who read well by third grade are four times as likely to graduate. So United Way is calling for one million volunteers over the next three years. We're asking you to step up, make a pledge, tutor a child who needs help, mentor a kid who needs someone on their side, volunteer to read to children, make a difference. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Entire communities improve. The path to success or failure starts long before graduation day. And the difference between a graduate and a dropout could be you. Be a reader, tutor or mentor. Give, advocate, volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge. Go to liveunited.org now. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Hi there, you're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. We're back with special guest, Julia Pimsler. Hi, Julia. Hi, Janine. Hi. So we were talking, I want to hear about, uh, we were talking about your company. How did you actually go about raising, you know, venture capital? How did that all transpire? Well, as I was mentioning, I found the whole thing a bit intimidating and was more, even more put off when I learned how few women get venture capital. And when I started looking at some of the venture capital firms I might approach, you know, I, the websites would come up on my computer, and it was just like 10 white guys every time, you know, 10 white guys, maybe one Indian guy. But there, there didn't seem mm-hmm. to be any women in this world. And as I did more research, I found out there are very few women VCs as well, which is part of why so few women get funded. Um, so I, I was a bit intimidated by all that, but I decided to approach it much like language learning, that this was going to be a new language that I was going to learn. It was going to be VC language. I was going to figure out how to talk to these people. <laughs> and I took strength from the fact that, you know, I had created this company from scratch, and we now were you know, one of the leading language teaching methods. So if I tackled that, I could tackle this. And I just looked Great. at it as a big challenge. And I spent months really doing research, um, talking to other CEOs, mainly guy friends who had raised venture capital, and having them walk me through everything that went into it, reading books, getting coaching, just tons and tons of research. It took me about six months before I was even in a place to start reaching out to VCs. And I also found out that you actually can't approach them cold. One of the main things that's different about raising venture capital is that somebody has to make an introduction. You can't just write to them as you could with some other kinds of investors. So there was a whole other layer of, you know, getting to know people who knew them. And I I also had to, you know, bring on a full-time assistant because this took me out of the company so much that, you know, I had to have somebody helping with all the work that I wasn't getting to. But I just kept my eyes on the prize and really thought, we're going to get this money. I'm going to make it happen. And I had this amazing staff. And every day that I came in and saw them, you know, hunkered down, making so many amazing things happen, I just thought, I have to do this. And, and I'm the only one who can do it. So I'm going to do it. It was not fun. Um, once I started, <laughs> it took about a year from beginning to end to secure that money. I've probably pitched my company over 30 times mm. to, you know, various venture capitalists and also came to, you know, went to roundtables, did pitches. I've, I've read online that people sometimes pitch their companies up to 100 times. So oh, even though yeah. 30 felt like a lot, you know, it, right. could, it could have been worse. Um, and then I got lucky that I found a company, a venture capital firm that I didn't know about called Golden Seeds. 
Golden and Golden Seeds. Seeds is women investors, mainly women who've been on Wall Street, who have a mission of investing in women-run companies. How refreshing after you hadn't found any. Exactly. They were sort of the oasis um, in that world. But I, I, to be fair, I did come across a lot of really great VCs. You know, they weren't all as scary as, as I thought they would be. <laughs> they tend to be very passionate about the companies they invest in. And I learned a lot about, you know, the financial side, talking about the marketplace. It was a really great exercise in sort of being, upping my, uh, my CEO chops. Um, I had to rise to the occasion. But Golden Seeds, um, I did a big presentation in front of about 150 of their members, and it went well. And then we started a what's called a due diligence process, which took another four to six months. And so about a year after I had started, they committed as my VC backers, and I was able to raise that money. But what I, what I hear you saying in all this is that you prepared, you did your homework, and that's really, really important because you can't get in there cold without doing your homework and pitch. That's so true, yes. And, and I think, you know, the attitude is so important, and that's why I love that your show is about, you know, what mindset are you in? Because yes. I, it was essential that I get in the mindset that I'm going to make this happen. Because this is a situation where you're, you, you go into it knowing you're going to get, you know, 30 to 50 to 100 no's. Yes. Everyone's going to say no to you. That's just how it works. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then one day you'll get a yes, but you don't know when that yes will be. It's interesting how a lot of times we pick these careers that we know are just so challenging, but something in us, we just keep going. Well, yeah, and I think in my case, it's really the, the love of our mission that, you know, we are looking to transform how children learn foreign languages. And everybody at my company is really inspired by that in the sense that until we created Little Pim, it was only kids of families that could afford a foreign-born nanny or expensive language classes where the kids could get that benefit, you know, and in our global economy, it's so important for all kids to have access to speaking a second language. So we're really inspired by that. And I think having that higher mission was part of what drove me forward, is realizing I'm just the, the, the vessel through which this is all passing, yes. and I need to be the best possible vessel, but, you know, we, we need to make this change for kids, or we really want to make this change. And you're so passionate about it. Well, I couldn't have done it if I wasn't. I Definitely think it, couldn't have. I and, think you know, eventually, in the process of talking to all these VCs, I realized that one of the key things they were looking for was passion. And I have that, you know, in bushelfuls. So yes. I started feeling better some, somewhere along the way where I realized I had the key ingredient and everything else I could learn. You know, back to the language analogy, I had to learn how to talk about my financials in a way that resonated with them. And I had to learn their language, right. registration rights, valuation um, you know, it, IRA agreements, stock option agreements. There were just a lot of terms that I was not familiar with that I had to get familiar with pretty quickly. I would think going into a room, having to answer a whole bunch of questions, boy, you have to be prepared and confident. Very nerve-wracking. Yes, it was. And, it, and, and it's interesting, having gone through that, I felt really passionate about trying to make it easier for others. And when I got the last bit of funding that I was, waiting for because it, it was all kind of staggered how it how the money came in and the last chunk fell in january of this past year so just about six months ago and i decided Great. that i should take all this learning and pass it on to other women ceos to try to get that four percent venture capital invested in women-run companies up into at least the, du- the double digits. That right. would at least be acceptable if it was like you know, yes. 10 to 20% yes. funding of women. So I started this little boot camp for women who want to fundraise for their companies, and I called it Double Digit Academy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I was reading that on your blog. Tell me about that. Well, it's really just a sense of, you know, 
paying it forward um, in the sense that so many people helped me when I went out to look for money, not just women, you know, men as well, my advisors, other CEOs, VCs who got on the phone with me and helped me, you know, perfect my pitch. And I thought it shouldn't have taken that long. It really should have been like a month of research and then get going and start fundraising. And it started to make me think maybe this is why so few women get funded is that it all just seems so daunting. I mean, women are trying to run their businesses and then if they think they need capital, the idea that they're going to step out of their business for six months just to learn what to do, you know, and then spend another six months to a year raising that money, that's a big barrier. And yes. many of us are working mothers. You know, we have a lot of demands on our time. So I thought if I could at least make that piece easier, that maybe more women would go after that capital and, and come into this little rarefied circle that I'm now very happy to be part of. But I'd like to see more women in it. You know, it'd be great to have, a, have that company. So I did um, start teaching women just kind of in my conference room on the weekend, and I would just teach eight women at a time in a very kind of intimate seminar setting. I brought in my public speaking coach because he was a big part of how I was able to succeed in pitching. I'd always assumed that because I was a good talker, I would also be a good pitcher, you know, to VCs. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case. It turns out that's a whole other way of speaking and communicating. That needed to be learned. That's great so that now, you. It, excuse me. That's great that you felt that you needed to get a coach because, like you said, you thought you were fine. I did, but I just uh, I saw a couple people pitch and <laughs> realized, oh, I, I don't actually know how to do that. Um, you know, to say your entire company story yes. in ten minutes and under yes. in a way that's going to make someone want to pull out their checkbook and write a check. Right. You know, that's different than talking passionately about your company at a cocktail party. You have to hit sure. different points. You have to have different. Um, pieces of information up your sleeve, different PowerPoint presentation. So I got all this great help with that. And now that uh, coach, Bill Smart, has teamed up with me, and he comes into the academy and teaches the women for an hour and a half how to pitch their company the most effectively. And then I invite in a VC. I met all these great VCs along the way who actually do care that there aren't enough women being funded. And so I invite one of them in each time to talk to the women for an hour and answer all their questions and just make it a little less scary. You know, if I could have sat down with someone for an hour before I went out on the road, that would have been great. Yes. <laughs> that is great. I love what you're doing. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm loving it. It's been so gratifying to share all this information. And I've gathered all the legal documents and all the questions they might have. And I'm you know, improving and refining it each time when they give me feedback, and eventually I'm going to put it all online so that women everywhere who want to raise money can access this information, not just New York women who can come to my academy. So that's doubledigitacademy.com? Yes, that's right. And there are also a lot of resources on there, places for women to find funding, articles, so that women who can't participate in the academy actually just had someone write to me from the West Coast, not oh. realizing we were only in New York. And so we do have a lot of information online for those folks. Which leads me to my a question I have. What, tell me about your personal motto. Oh, sure. Uh, my personal motto is Fortis Fortuna Juvat, and that means fortune favors the brave. I love that. How'd you come up with that? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, one of my mentors actually used to say it to me, and it took me a while to ask what that actually meant, because as a language person, I thought, I, sh I should know that. That's Latin, but I don't know. <laughs> yes. And I finally, you know, asked him, what is that? And it's fortune favors the brave. And, you know, I think it's fairly self-explanatory, right? It's like if you put yourself out there, yes. eventually good things will happen. Yes. And I think that for women CEOs, that's so important that they be willing to just really dream their biggest dream, be brave, put it all out there. Be confident. And, you know, find yes. the, yeah, have the confidence and then also find the mentors or advisors or help, whoever it is, pull them in and get them to be part of your vision. 
and then you can make anything happen, really. Mm. Did you know when you were attending Yale or, you know, these other experiences after Yale that maybe this is something you were going to do? Not at all, actually. Um, I like to say that I am a creative person who had an idea, and now I'm a business person with a creative, creative idea at the center of my business. Oh. But that was like a seven-year transformation. You know, now I, I think I'm a pretty high-functioning CEO, but I never would have imagined that for myself. I didn't go to business school. I don't have a numbers background. You know, it was really just out of necessity that I learned all these skills. And now I really love it. Now it's one of the parts of the business I enjoy the most is the strategizing, the board meetings, um, figuring out where we fit in the marketplace, and even, ironically, knowing all these VCs. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Unbelievably. (laughs) Very, very inspiring. And you also do a lot of speaking engagements. You've been at Stanford University, Yale. Tell me about some of those. Well, I just try to share my story with young people trying to figure out where their lives will take them. I mean, I certainly didn't know where my life was going to take me, but each decision you make along the way builds in a way that later on you can go back and connect the dots and see how it all hangs together. So my, my main message is really just about risk-taking and making sure that you're living the biggest, boldest version of yourself, whatever that might be for you. I like that. That's really important. Because sometimes we get so scared of change and we get stuck in a rut and we think, oh, well, maybe this is just it for me. And that idea I have is never going to come to life. Yes. And I've certainly been there, you know, on many other projects because Little Pim was not my first business. It was probably about my third. And I think getting comfortable with failure is a really important thing if you want to achieve anything in the world because you can't achieve things without failing along the way. And I think what happens after you fail is the most important indicator of, you know, your character and where you'll wind up in the world. You know, a lot of people fail and give up and walk away. It's the ones who fail and get up and keep going and learn from that who can really do anything. Anything is possible once you're in that mindset. It's so true because that's the whole theme of the show, Get the Funk Out, is that you're in that storm, you're riding this crazy roller coaster ride called life. And going through that craziness can lead you to bigger and better things. Well, and I love that you're speaking to people when they're in that place, because we are in this culture that's always talking about, you know, happiness and achievement and everything yes. at the other end of that tunnel. But what about the tunnel? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I thank you for bringing to light these stories and helping people to realize that no matter how deep the funk, you know, that might be where your greatest learning is going to happen. If I hadn't gotten in a funk about my business... I never would have called in the advisor who then led me to not only the answer, but a much better life. I mean, I, I love running my company again. We you know, have capital to do the things we need to do. It's been hugely transformational. So in retrospect, I'm glad I had that funk. And don't be afraid to ask for help to you know, open up and say, you know what, I'm lost. I, I, I feel like I'm at rock bottom here. That's a really good point. That's true. I mean, I was lucky in that this advisor was also my cousin, so mm-hmm. I felt a little more comfortable. <laughs> um, I don't think it's a coincidence that I didn't turn to some of my other advisors. But interestingly, I think that he was even more helpful because he knew I was in that funk. And you know what? He's an entrepreneur, and I'm sure he had been in that funk before. Yes. So he really didn't judge me for it. And I think that's probably the greatest fear, right, when you're in the funk, that if you share that with people, that they'll judge you and they'll yes. think you're weak or something. Yes. But in fact by being strong enough to name it, you're actually showing in that moment that you are a winner. You're a winner who happens to be having a really hard time. But 
winners are able to talk about their funks and their mistakes and their misses and get help. Yes. I think that's, that's something people forget. And as women, we're our own worst enemies. We talked about this. Oh, completely. I mean, we're full of self-limiting beliefs yes. where, you know, we, we don't need people to create roadblocks for us because we have them internally. Right. We carry them with us. <laughs> we're having these whole discussions and conversations at 3 a.m. <laughs> exactly, exactly, which is why, you know, even though I'm a feminist and I've always worked for women's rights, when I look at that statistic of only 4% of venture capital is being invested in women-run companies, I know that it's a combination of real discrimination that exists, but also women just not putting themselves out there. Because, you know, the flip side of it is, when I went out to raise venture capital, when I was sitting across from some of these, you know, committees of six men, they figured, wow, well, if you made it here, you somehow, you know, had the chutzpah to get in front of us, you must be pretty good. Yes, chutzpah. <laughs> so I actually right. had an advantage going in. And, you know, as women, we sometimes think, well, you know, it's going to be harder, which it is. But we also have an advantage if we can be one of the few women who make it through that funnel that That's we right. actually can get a good audience. That's so true. Any last bit of advice before we wrap up? I would just say if anyone is in a really dark place today to make a resolution to go talk to one person you trust who you are pretty sure is not going to judge you and just lay it all out on the table. You know, it was so helpful just to tell my cousin that day, like, this is how I'm feeling, mm-hmm. and here's what I see. What do you see? And to get someone else's perspective, really, really helpful. That's fantastic. Julia, thank you so much for calling into the show. Oh, it was such a pleasure talking with you. I enjoyed it. Before, and, uh, thanks for having me. And what's your website for people who want more information on you? Littlepim.com is the language teaching program, and DoubleDigitAcademy.com is the boot camp for women raising money. And you're on Twitter, too, right? I am, yeah, at Julia Pimsler. Great. Have a wonderful day, and thank you so much for all of your insight and inspiration. You too, Janine. Thanks for doing this show. Okay, take care. All righty, take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. That was Julia Pimsler. If you've missed any part of the show, it'll be up on my show blog, which is http colon slash slash getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. Up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. And next week, I'm going to have special guest Stacey Robin joining the show, talking about her latest CD, All the Way Home. We're going to listen to a track she sent me off her latest CD. It's called Fine Love. Have a great week, everyone. I'll be back here next week.